Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. Today's episode on imaging modalities will be hosted by Mohit Bide, our newest team member and a fourth-year medical student at Penn State College of Medicine. Hope you enjoy. Hey, future doctors. Thanks for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Mohit Bide. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Penn State, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we're going to cover the basics of how different imaging modalities work and patterns that will help set some groundwork. We'll build on what we've covered through cases the weights examined on step two. We'll start off with x-rays or radiography. Plain radiography works by having an x-ray source produce x-rays, which then pass through the patient and hit a photosensitive plate. The image you see depends on how the x-rays pass through different tissues. If x-rays pass easily through a tissue, they go right through the patient and expose the photosensitive plate, which makes it appear dark. If x-rays cannot pass through a tissue, they will either bounce off or get absorbed by the tissue and not hit the photosensitive plate, so it will not expose the plate and the image will appear bright. There are five densities of the human body, which basically describe whether x-rays pass freely through the tissue or get absorbed or scattered. Air is the least dense, and this makes sense because there's nothing physical for the x-rays to bounce off of, so they pass freely and it makes the image appear black. Fat is more dense than air, so it appears as a shade of gray lighter than black. Soft tissues and fluids appear the same on radiographs, and they are more dense than fat. You cannot distinguish between soft tissue and fluids, so you cannot differentiate, for example, between heart muscle and the blood inside the heart. More dense than soft tissue is calcium, which composes bone, but can also be visible in calcifications in tumors and granulomas. Calcium looks very light gray. And finally, metal has the highest density, and x-rays cannot pass through it well at all. Metal, screws, staples, orthopedic implants will all look bright white. The same fundamentals as x-ray apply for CT as well. CT imaging is a rotating x-ray which takes a bunch of 2D images along the length of a patient and then stacks them on top of each other to form a 3D image. Like x-rays, dense tissues like bones will absorb the x-rays and appear whiter, and less dense tissues like fat will permit x-rays to pass through them and appear darker. The next topic is ultrasound. Ultrasound works by having a transducer produce ultrasonic waves, which then go through the patient's body and can either get absorbed, reflected, scattered, or refracted. A transducer will listen for a return signal and produce images based on the intensity of the returning signal, or the echo. Different tissues can be anechoic, hypoechoic, or hyperechoic, where anechoic means that the tissue does not return an echo, hypoechoic means that it returns a soft echo, and hyperechoic means it returns a very intense echo. Fluid is anechoic because the ultrasound waves pass right through without emitting a return echo, so it will look black. Bone will look very bright because the sound waves will bounce very well off of it, so it is hyperechoic. Since sound waves cannot pass through bone, areas underneath it will be dark, as the ultrasound cannot get any information on what is happening beyond the bone. Muscle, tendon, and nerve will have hyper and hypoechogeneic components. For example, nerves will look like honeycomb structures, where there will be hypoechoic spots on a hyperechoic background. Muscle will look hypoechoic for the most part, but will have linear streaks of hyperechogeneity, which is the paramecium, that connective tissue sheets surrounding muscle fibers. Finally, tendons will look like tight hyperechogeneic lines, which represent the tendon fibrils. The last imaging modality we'll cover is MRI, or magnetic resonance imaging. In your body, you have tons and tons of water, and the protons within the hydrogen atoms of water are normally randomly oriented. 
When you step in an MRI machine, a powerful uniform magnetic field is applied, which forces the protons to become aligned. Then, a radio frequency pulse is applied, which disturbs the proton alignment. When the radio frequency pulse ends, the protons relax back to their aligned orientation, and in doing so, they give off a signal of energy. Different tissues are characterized by two different relaxation times, T1 and T2, which is where T1 and T2 weighted imaging come from. The physics of T1 and T2 is beyond the scope of the USMLE, but the general principle is that CSF is dark or hypo-intense on T1 and bright or hyper-intense on T2. Now we're going to go through a couple of cases. I'll purposefully be vague and try to avoid buzzwords as much as possible. So case one is a 27-year-old with a history of injection drug use and incarceration. He's had subacute fever, subjective weakness, vomiting, and a headache for the past few days. He decided to come to the ED after experienced weakness of his right arm and right leg. On exam, he has three out of five strength of his right arm and right leg, fever, and a stiff neck. Imaging shows enhancement of the meninges. What's your diagnosis? This is tuberculous meningitis. This gentleman's history of injection drug use and incarceration raises the risk for TB. His symptoms of fever, headache, and mucal rigidity are typical of tuberculous meningitis, and patients can also present with cranial nerve 3, 6, and 7 palsies, hemiparesis, paraparesis, or seizures. The imaging showing meningeal enhancement, which is a nonspecific term for inflammation of the meninges, is consistent with meningitis as well. What would you expect to see on CSF studies? You should expect a high white blood cell count, around 100 to 500, high protein, and low glucose, as well as a lymphocytic predominance to the white blood cells. Second case, let's say you have a 37-year-old male brought into the ED after a motor vehicle collision. He was the unrestrained driver, and his car hit a tree head-on, then rolled over. He's intoxicated and is reporting tenderness behind his neck. Fast exam is negative and he's hemodynamically stable. What's the next best step in diagnosis? The next best step would be a cervical spine CT. This patient had a high energy mechanism of injury and is also having spinal tenderness and is intoxicated. He needs to get imaging done. Keep in mind the nexus criteria, which are having a neurological deficit, spinal tenderness, altered mental status, intoxication, or distracting injury when deciding to order imaging. Let's say that the cervical spine CT showed a fracture. What's your next best step? It should be to image the whole spine. When you have a high energy mechanism in one vertebral fracture, especially in the cervical region, there is a high probability that there is another fracture somewhere along the spine, so you should investigate with a whole spine CT. Third case. Let's say we have a 22-year-old female. She has a BMI of 36 and comes to the office concerned with headaches. She thought there were migraines, so just took some over-the-counter pain control, but decided to come in after having nausea and vomiting since yesterday. She's also hearing ringing in both of her ears. She just happens to have an eye doctor appointment this afternoon. What diagnostic test would you order in the meantime? Get an MRI or do a lumbar puncture. She has signs of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which classically occurs in obese women on OCPs and can present with signs of increased intracranial pressure, focal neurological deficits, blind spots from papilledema, and pulsatile tinnitus. On imaging, you need to exclude venous thrombosis, and you may see an empty cell. 
On an LP, a pressure of more than 25 centimeters water is diagnostic. If you let it go uncontrolled, the patient runs the risk of blindness from optic nerve damage. How would you treat this? You'd treat this with weight loss and acetazolamide, which is a choroid plexus carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, which will decrease the amount of CSF produced. Case 4. This is a 40-year-old man, and he's concerned with bilateral weakness of his arms. When he comes to the office, he also has decreased sensation in the bilateral arms and also his neck. Bicep reflex is lost bilaterally. What's your next step in diagnosis? Get an MRI of the C-spine without contrast. He likely has a syringomyelia with compressive effects causing decreased strength and sensation in a cape-like distribution with relative sparing of the legs and loss of reflexes due to nerve fiber damage as it goes from the dorsal to ventral horn. How would you treat this? You would first give steroids for its anti-inflammatory effects and then proceed with surgery to get rid of the syringomyelia. Moving on to case 5, this is a 16-year-old male with severe pain and loss of vision in his left eye after getting hit in the face. On exam, his eyelid is as hard as a rock and he cannot move the left eye. What is the next best step? It should be emergency surgical decompression. This man has orbital compartment syndrome, which is an emergency. It presents with eye pain, diplopia, vision loss, an exam will show periorbital swelling, proptosis, limited EOMs, and an afferent pupillary defect. Imaging should be delayed until the decompression is carried out. Alright, case 6. We have a 75-year-old man complaining of trouble swallowing and spitting up food. He says his wife has noted that his breath is really bad. What's your next step in diagnosis? Get a barium esophagram. He likely has a zenker diverticulum, which is a false diverticulum in older males presenting as dyspatia, halitosis, regurgitation, plus or minus a neck mass due to outpouching between the cricopharyngeus and pharyngeal constrictor muscles. How would you treat this? You would do a surgery called a cricopharyngeal myotomy. Case 7. We have a 65-year-old male with a 40-pack year smoking history and chronic alcoholism. He presents with two months of a firm neck mass and has a raspy voice. What's your next step in diagnosis? This is a squamous cell carcinoma of the neck. Given this man's significant history of smoking, alcohol consumption, and his presentation of a firm neck mass lasting longer than two weeks, the hoarseness in his voice is suggestive of laryngeal involvement as well. The best next step is a panendoscopy, which is a bronchoscopy, endoscopy, and laryngoscopy. You'd follow this with a neck CT with contrast to stage the cancer and a fine needle aspiration of the lymph node to grade the cancer. Remember that staging a cancer relates to the size of the tumor and how far it has spread, and grading relates to the appearance of the cancerous cells. Okay, case eight. Let's say we have a 32-year-old IV drug user who developed sepsis and has had ongoing surgical debridements of an infected thigh wound. One day he develops a breakthrough fever, his white blood cells are at 14,000, his ALT and AST are both in the high 80s, and he has new right upper quadrant pain. What's the next best step? This patient has acalculus cholecystitis. 
Remember that he has sepsis, has had recent surgeries, and has likely been NPO very frequently and is possibly receiving TPM. These are all risk factors to developing a calculus cholecystitis. The best next step in this case is to get an abdominal ultrasound of the right upper quadrant. It's cheap and sensitive enough to make the diagnosis. What would you do if the ultrasound is equivocal? You can try a HIDA scan or a CT scan. And on a CT scan, you would be looking for a gallbladder wall thickening, luminal distension, evidence of biliary sludge, and collections of fluid around the gallbladder. How would you treat this? If he's not yet clinically stable, you would do a cholecystostomy to drain the sludge in the gallbladder. Once he's stable, you can go ahead with a cholecystectomy. Case 9. Let's say we have a 35-year-old woman with a history of diabetes and peripheral arterial disease, as well as venous insufficiency. She comes into the ED because of right upper quadrant pain and two days of nausea and vomiting. On exam, the temperature is 103 Fahrenheit, and she has guarding and rebound tenderness on the right upper quadrant palpation. When you palpate the right upper quadrant, you also feel some crackling under the skin. What's the next best step? This woman has emphysematous cholecystitis. Her right upper quadrant pain, nausea, and vomiting are indicative of cholecystitis, and the crepitus on right upper quadrant palpation is suggestive of emphysematous cholecystitis. Her risk factors of diabetes and vascular disease contribute here as well. The best next step is to do an emergent cholecystectomy and start her on broad-spectrum antibiotics. Do you know which pathogen you should ensure coverage for? You should cover for Clostridium. Clostridium and E. coli are gas-forming pathogens which contribute to the crepitus in the abdominal wall. Something like Ampicillin Sulbactam has adequate coverage. Alright, case 10. This is a 55-year-old man who presents his PCP with yellow skin. He's also lost 30 pounds in the last two months. What imaging would you order for the diagnosis? It's very likely that this is cholangiocarcinoma. When you have sudden onset painless jaundice in a middle-aged adult, cholangiocarcinoma is a do-not-miss diagnosis. The blood work you can order is a carcinogenic embryonic antigen, or CEA, CA199, and an AFP. What abnormalities would you expect in these three labs? In cholangiocarcinoma, AFP is normal and CA199 and CEA are elevated. For imaging, you should order an endoscopic ultrasound or an ERCP to visualize the bile ducts and pancreatic ducts. What is the most common complication of an ERCP? Pancreatitis. When you do an ERCP, there's a likelihood of damage to the pancreatic sphincter from instrumentation or injury from the injection of contrast, which can lead to post-ERCP pancreatitis. Case 11. We have a 65-year-old man who has had an open aortic valve replacement. He's had severe pain after the operation, and this has been controlled by high doses of opiates. He hasn't had a bowel movement in eight days, and his abdomen is markedly distended, tympanitic to percussion, with decreased bowel sounds. What imaging will you order? This is Ogilvy syndrome, or acute colonic pseudo-obstruction. Ogilvy syndrome occurs when there is massive colonic distension in the absence of any mechanical obstruction, 
and is associated with surgery, traumatic injury, and severe infection. A good start is to get an abdominal x-ray. What would you expect to see? You will see a non-dilated small bowel, colonic dilatation, and normal hostra. How would you manage this? Try making the patient NPO and provide NG tube and recto tube decompression. Case 12. We have a 55-year-old woman with a history of coronary artery disease and ischemic stroke with severe pain around her umbilicus. She rates it as a 9 out of 10, but on exam there's very little tenderness to palpation. She's admitted to the hospital and very quickly decompensates with a heart rate of 160 and blood pressure of 80 over 50. What imaging would reveal the diagnosis? This woman has acute mesenteric ischemia. Her history of coronary artery disease and stroke suggests that she has underlying atherosclerosis, which is a risk factor. She complains of 9 out of 10 pain, but this is disproportionate to her physical exam findings, which show very little tenderness. This was a trick question, because you would not do any imaging in this case. She's clinically unstable with tachycardia and hypotension, so you would go straight to the OR for an emergency laparotomy to resect any dead bowel and control any active bleeding. If she was in stable condition, a CT scan is preferred for diagnosis, and you can do an MR angiography or mesenteric angiography if the diagnosis is still unclear. What would your treatment be? You would do a balloon angioplasty to expand any stenosed vessels and a stent to keep the vessel open. Moving on to case 13, a 42-year-old man who got piptazo and now has bloody diarrhea and new abdominal distension. What's your diagnosis? This is toxic megacolon. After receiving the piptazo, he likely got a C. diff infection, and a feared complication of C. diff is toxic megacolon, which presents as fever, hypotension with tachycardia, bloody diarrhea, and peritonitis. The diagnostic criteria will be fever, tachycardia, leukocytosis, anemia, and greater than 6 cm dilatation of the right colon, or greater than 9 cm dilatation of the cecum, and loss of the hostral pattern. Let's say that the team decides to do a barium enema. What would you expect to happen? A barium enema is contraindicated in toxic megacolon because it's associated with colonic perforation. An enema in this case would lead to perforation, so it should not be done. Case 14. We have a 23-year-old woman on oral contraceptives and a single solid lesion 2 centimeters large was found on the liver incidentally after she got a CT scan. What's the next best step? This woman has a hepatic adenoma, which is a benign epithelial tumor associated with oral contraceptive use. Typically, they are asymptomatic but can occasionally lead to abdominal pain in the right upper quadrant. Rarely, the adenoma can rupture, which presents a severe abdominal pain with hypotension. The best next step here is to leave the adenoma alone and discontinue her oral contraceptive pills. Asymptomatic adenomas smaller than 5 cm can be managed in this way. If the adenoma is symptomatic or greater than 5 cm, you would do a surgical excision. Do not do a needle biopsy of the mass, because it can lead to rupture and bleeding. In this episode, we've covered the basics of ultrasound, x-rays, CT scans, and MRI, and laid the groundwork for what to look for when you get a radiological study. 
We also went through some cases together to understand the indications for imaging in various pathologies. Remember that when you're taking the step exams, any imaging they give you will be to help you eliminate answer choices or get to the right answer. If there are any abnormalities, they're going to be emphasized, like a giant intra-abdominal hematoma or a cranial tumor with compressive effects. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. Good luck with studying, and remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is here to help the medicine go down. 